Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. Be still and know that God is here. In the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. What's in a smell? What do you think of when you conjure up a memory that includes a distinct smell? Author Richard Kipling once wrote this, smells are surer than sights or sounds to make your heartstrings crack. Each of our five senses work together, taste, sight, touch, smell, and hearing. If one is taken away, another will take over and become more dominant to make up for the missing one. Some of us have a stronger affinity to one sense over another. But suffice to say, all the senses are important and play a central role in how we experience and, as it turns out, make meaning and even memory in our lives. I was reminded of this truth after reading the gospel lesson for today. And I have spent a glorious week reveling in memories entwined with a sense of smell. And all of that has me wondering what it is that is so important about our sense of smell in the story that we just heard from the gospel of John. But before we get to the gospel, I want to start closer to home. What is it about the sense of smell that is so powerful to me? Here are a few of my personal examples. Some are small, even trivial, or maybe even a bit crazy, but each is deeply ingrained in me. And as I share this short list, perhaps you could think of your own. My list of important smells include these. The smell of cut grass. The smell of fresh baked dinner rolls, the smell of a skunk spray, and the smell of pinyon wood burning. Any thoughts on what these smells all have in common? The answer for me is simply people and places that have shaped and formed me throughout my lifetime. To be even more succinct on our Lenten journey right now, what they have in common is goodness. It is lovely to me that as we come to the end of this Lenten journey, we have this gospel lesson to complete our sermon series using the theme we have held up for these five weeks, Made for Goodness. Using the writings of Desmond and Mpo Tutu, we have drawn out this theme as a fairly countercultural response to a more traditional approach to this otherwise more penitential season. Week after week, we have been invited to reflect deeply on the various aspects of how and why we are made in the image of God's goodness and how that core aspect of our identity ties into who and how we are called to be in the world. So here's a quick recap of the journey that we have been on. We have been, we began recognizing that we are all broken and blessed and that sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. 
Then on the second week, we reminded ourselves that following Jesus means that goodness can sometimes be found in the smallest of everyday moments of our lives. From there, we spent time wrestling with what do we do when bad things happen to good people, and that perhaps our most faithful response is simply to surrender to the moment, however tragic it might be, and find the courage to be present for one another, trusting that goodness will carry us through. Then last week, we considered the power of extravagant goodness and perfect love through two versions of the parable of the prodigal son. So here we are today, nearing the end of this Lenten journey, and we are invited to do so through one of our senses. So without belaboring these too much, these items that I have lifted up as personal examples, I want to connect these back to the gospel. So here's a little bit about what makes my good smells list. The smell of cut grass. I grew up in a house with a really big front lawn, and my dad cut the grass on a riding mower for years. And after each mow, when he was finished, he attached a wonderful red wagon to the back of the mower, and then all four kids got to jump in and drive around laughing and shouting and smelling that grass. So the smell of cut grass is pure love, pure joy, pure goodness to me. The smell of fresh-baked dinner rolls. Some of you have heard me tell the story about Lily, pretty much a second mother to me. She was the woman that was hired by my parents to help cook and clean and care for us. To me, she was a parental figure. She taught me many things, including how to say one version of the Lord's Prayer, and perhaps equally as important, how to make homemade Parker House dinner rolls. Again, pure love, pure joy, pure goodness. The next list uh, smell on my list is the smell of a skunk spray. Okay, this one is weird, I admit it, but it's totally true. Years ago, all us kids were in a station wagon with my mom and we smelled a skunk and of course let out a cacophony of yuck, ew, pew. So probably just in an attempt to practice her own parental civil disobedience, my mom simply said, I love that smell. Well, from that moment on, with my family as my witness, every time we smell a skunk spray, we just smile at each other and say, hmm, mom. Again, pure love, pure joy, pure goodness. And finally, the last smell on my list, the smell of pinyon wood burning. While I grew up in Michigan, my family has had a second home in Albuquerque, New Mexico for many, many decades. And that was the place where we gathered as a family year after year after year for vacations. Anyone who has ever been in the Southwest knows the very distinctive and beautiful smell of pinyon wood, either through the popular incense or the actual wood as it burns in a fireplace. Within a second of that smell, I am immediately transported back to all those wonderful family memories. Again, pure love, pure joy, pure goodness. There is not a single one of those smells that I could, even if I wanted to, 
separate out from those powerful memories. So, as we turn to the gospel lesson we just heard, I am wondering how and why the sense of smell factors in so prominently. And is there something, anything in today's gospel that can also be described as pure love, pure joy, pure goodness, even as we are now just days away from beginning our holy week of observances as we walk with Jesus to the cross? The smell in the gospel this morning is, of course, the smell of perfume, the perfume that Mary, sister of Lazarus and Martha, used to anoint Jesus's feet. But it wasn't just any oil. It was oil costing almost a year's wages, the kind bought and saved for only the most special of occasions the kind that would smell so exquisite and would permeate every nook and cranny of every room. The text says, Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus's feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And it is in that moment of the story that I suspect at least the two of them, Mary and Jesus, shared a moment, a moment perhaps, of pure love, pure joy, pure goodness. There didn't appear to be any rationale for this kind of extravagant generosity or outrageous sharing of what otherwise would have been carefully kept and used over a long period of time. And that was not lost on the others present that night as they gathered for that dinner. Mary was scorned by the disciple Judas, rebuking her for not selling the costly perfume and using the money to feed the hungry. But regardless of his ulterior motives, Jesus set them all straight, dismissing the criticism out of hand. Rather, it seems Jesus is saying that this is the smell of extravagant love. Maybe not planned, perhaps not completely rational, maybe even a bit outrageous, but so too is God's love. It seems possible, as we approach this text with the gift of hindsight, Mary's actions that night may be understood in the context of foreshadowing and embodying Jesus' final commandment, the one that we will hear so clearly on Monday, Thursday, the commandment to love one another as I have loved you. You see, in this context, this powerful and beautiful smell today does not and will not counteract the imminent smell of Jesus' death soon to be upon us. But perhaps, perhaps the scent of that perfume today can trigger another memory in us as well. Or more importantly, trigger a person and a place that can help shape who and how we are in the world as we move towards Holy Week. Perhaps this year, as we journey to the foot of the cross, we can remember all the smells in our lives that trigger pure love, pure joy, pure goodness. So that when we gather here on, Friday, on Good Friday and smell that smell, that scent of death, we will do so knowing that one does not replace the other. 
It occurs to me that smells don't replace each other, do they? They have their own integrity and they offer contrast, if not complement each other at times. Smells seem to tell a story, a kind of truth about our human existence and bind us deeply to our experiences and our memories. The sense of smell is so very human, so real, so impressive, which may be a part of the point of this story and our story as well. Today seems to me to be a gritty, simple, wonderful and profound reminder that Jesus is truly word made flesh. Caught between the smell of love and pure joy today and the smell of imminent death and grief at the cross is Jesus. There is no one or the other. We get both. We have to have both in our lives. Both have to exist as to reinforce that incarnation really matters. In the end, I suspect our storyteller might have wanted us to pause for just a minute in the narrative and be reminded of the complicated nature of life. What it means to live from an awareness of being deeply connected to everyone and everything around us and what better way to do that than through our senses. There is just something about a smell that transcends our, our ability to articulate our deepest knowing. And maybe remembering that today is enough. Maybe ending this sermon series reminding us that we are made for goodness by conjuring up a smell that brings us peace and joy and goodness is a beautiful way to reinforce the power of goodness planted deep within us, wanting to be remembered in a very simple and profound way. I want to end today and this collection of sermons giving the tutus the last word. They have offered us extravagant moments of goodness these past few weeks, drawing us along, and I am deeply grateful for their life's work and witness. Their final prayer in the book speaks to my heart, and I pray it touches that deep and tender place in you as well. They ask us ask for us to turn into the stillness and listen to God as if God is speaking with the voice of the heart. You are my child, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Stand beside me and see yourself. Borrow my eyes so that you can see perfectly. When you look with my eyes, then you will see that the wrong you have done and the good left undone, the words you have said that should not have been spoken, the words you should have spoken but left unsaid, the hurts you have caused, the help you've not given, you are not, the, are not the whole of the story of you. You are not defined by what you did not achieve. Your worth is not determined by success. You were priceless before you drew your first breath, beautiful before dress or artifice, good, so very good at the core. And now is time for unveiling. 
the goodness that is hidden behind the fear of failing. You shout down your impulse to kindness in case it is shunned. You suck in your smile. You smother your laughter. You hold back the hand that would help. You crush your indignation. When you see people wronged or in pain, in case all you do is not enough, in case you cannot fix the fault, in case you cannot soothe the searing, in case you cannot make it right, what does it matter if your efforts move no mountains? It does not matter at all. It only matters that you live the truth of you. It only matters that you push back the veil to let your goodness shine through. It only matters that you live as I have made you. It only matters that you are made for me, made like me, made for goodness. May it be so.